Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. this the old-fashioned way if we can't get the screen working, so hopefully you brought your Bible. If not, you have exactly 30 seconds to get on Wi-Fi, download the Uversion Bible app, navigate to our live events page, and the notes will be there for you there. On your mark, get set, go. All right, this is so awesome. My name is Pastor Joey. As Scott said, for those of you that are new, we welcome you, and we just want to encourage you to, uh, to hang in there with us. We are unplugging. We are diving deep into the book of Revelation. And uh, it's been an exciting journey so far. Uh, we just are thankful that you're here with us today, and we encourage you to, uh, to spend the next three weeks with us. Uh, we know how hard it is to try to find a new faith family and a spiritual home in one week, and so we just encourage you to take that three-week challenge and uh, let us know if this is your third week or if you've made it to three weeks, come let us know, and we'll celebrate with you. We'd also encourage you to mark September 27th down on your calendar. That's going to be our membership class where you get to find out about how we started, the vision for the church, and where you can fit in as one of uh, our official faith family members. Um, I know it's, it's kind of like when you're dating, there's like the, that unsurety, are we going to be together forever? Well, the membership class helps you make that decision. Okay, we're getting married. We're, we're, we're hitching it up. Yeah, we're we're going to connect. And, uh, and so it's a lot of fun. Uh, we have you over at our house. We have coffee because what's a meeting without coffee? And, uh, and we have a good time. I'm so thankful for our time of worship today. And that, even just that prayer uh, that Tony gave there at the end, I needed that. I mean, one of the most discouraging things that you can deal with in life is when you have unfulfilled promises. And you're waiting on God to make good on what he has spoken. And, and this past week in my, my devotional reading, I'm reading through uh, Charles Spurgeon's Morning by Morning. It's a devotion for every day from one of the great revivalists of our Christian heritage, and in one of his um, devotionals, he just talks about how God is perfect, and he is always faithful. He has never failed to make good on anything he's promised. So what does it say when we doubt the perfect one who's never failed? And it was like a gut, a heart check for me, like, oh, okay, this, this feeling that I have, I'm feeling sorry for myself for I'm struggling with this area, it's really because my heart is misdirected. I'm I'm not trusting in God's faithfulness. I'm trusting in my ability to understand. Or I've got some misapplied uh, priorities. And so it just uh, has kind of come full circle this morning. And I'm excited for what God has for us in the book of Revelation. Because if we think about the book of Revelation, this book was written around 90 A.D., like nearly 2,000 years ago. And so Jesus said, and I love what John writes in the Bible, he says, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. 2,000 years is not my definition of soon. Amen? Right? And at the end of the book, John writes, even so, Lord, come quickly. All right, God, I, when you invented the English language, I don't know if you knew the definition of the word quickly, but I think we've kind of missed that. Like, we're, we're not quickly, right? And so sometimes it can be hard to hang in there and hold on. But today's, today's study, I think, is going to be an encouragement to you. Uh, we're in week eight of our study in Revelation. This is really part two of our study that we began last week, looking at the churches of Pergamum 
in Thyatira, these letters that Jesus wrote to them through the Apostle John. And uh, as we've kind of been um, digging into this great rebellion that Jesus warned us about in the Gospels and this great apostasy that Paul warned us about that would take place before the end of the world or really the tribulational period or the end of days would take place. And here Jesus is warning us about this falling away that would not only bring about this end of days, would not only bring about the persecution of true believers, but it would also put on pressure for the faithful church to cave in to the pressure of accepting ideas and philosophies and doctrines that are rooted in demonic powers. These false lies and false teachings and false practices. And it, the pressure would be for us to celebrate them as virtues or good things. And we kind of peeled back the, the layers of what some of those things could be even in our day today as it really mirrors what was happening back in the ancient times. And how Jesus said to these churches, those who were faithful, he's like, keep going, keep doing a good job. But then he said, for those who have fallen away, those who have accepted these practices, who begin to believe these demonic doctrines and engage in these, in these behaviors, that there is a coming judgment that they're going to face if they don't repent of their ways and submit to the authority of the word of God and his will for their lives. And even in the judgment, God extends grace as he says, but I'm giving you time to repent. There's still time. There's still time for us to let the word of God saturate our hearts and help redirect our lives that we walk in faithfulness to almighty God. And I love that each letter that he writes doesn't just come with these like harsh rebukes or condemnation. It also comes with promises of future blessing, of rewards for those who would be faithful. And so today we're going to look at the rewards proclaimed to these two churches, to those who hold fast to the faith, who stand strong, and what the Lord promises, that this will be their reality when they see Jesus face to face. We're going to begin reading in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Here's what the word of the Lord says. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Then to the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2, 26 through 28, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, the one who keeps my works until the end. That's what the word conquers means. It's not, it's not about actual battle. It's about the battle over the flesh that we stay faithful to Jesus Christ until the day we see him face to face. To the one who conquers, keeps my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations. And they will rule them with an iron rod as with earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your presence and your word. We thank you, God, for the heart check. But we also, God, we thank you for the promises and the reward, the hope and the joy you are setting before us. So, God, again, I just pray a lifting of the spirit of heaviness a lifting of the discouragement. I pray, God, that you would descend upon us and fill us with joy because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is joy in the presence of Almighty God. And I pray, God, that your heart would be on display 
that you'd give us ears to hear, eyes to see, a mind that understands, and a heart ready to believe and receive what you have for us, that you'd strengthen our faith, embolden our courage as we live in these dark days as bright lights shining for Jesus Christ. We thank you so much. And all God's people said, amen, amen. We, can I get an amen like you mean it? Amen, right? Sometimes you got to get the southern drawl in there. Amen, right? We can even spank that devil every once in a while. We throw that out there. It's spanking. So Jesus, as he's writing to the church of Pergamum, he begins to unfold these rewards to the faithful. And the, the first two rewards we're going to look at were to the church of Pergamum. And here's what he says. I will give you some of the hidden manna. Somebody say manna. The hidden manna. Now, manna is famous. You probably are already familiar with where this comes from. It comes from the pinnacle story in the Bible. If you don't understand the Exodus, you will not understand the rest of the Bible. The story of Moses in Israel coming out of Egypt into the promised land is the type for everything else God is going to fulfill in the New Testament. And so here, the manna is come, comes from this story as God has taken the Israelites out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They're now on their way to the, through the desert to the promised land. The problem with the desert is that it's a desert. There's nothing there but dead things. And so in order to provide for their needs, to sustain them, he provided them this food-like substance, this manna, that the word manna literally means, what is it? That's what it means. If you break it down in the original language, it means, what is it? Now think about these people. This was a people, they were nomadic in nature. They had been in Egypt for 300 years, but prior to their people, their heritage, they had traveled all over the, the region of Mesopotamia. So they were not unfamiliar to what was in the desert. In order to travel from city to city or place to place, they would often go through these places uh, through trade or pilgrimages. They would be well aware with what was available in the desert. And so when they come across this substance and they name it, what is it? It's not because they had never, like, they had never tasted it before. It's because they had never seen this before. Nobody had seen it before. This is not a common phenomenon. This is not a natural thing that was just happening all the time that they just stumbled upon. This was a new thing that God had done. And in uh, the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament in the Targum called Pseudo-Jonathan, it translates Exodus 16.4 like this, that the manna was laid up for or hidden in the highest heaven from the beginning. So this manna was not something that naturally occurs. There was a supernatural element to the manna. Matter of fact, in Psalm 78, verses 24 through 25, the psalmist says that God rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of what? The bread of angels, and he sent them food in abundance. So the understanding of these ancient Jewish people, the mindset was that this was unnatural. This was supernatural. There's a supernatural nature to it. It rained down upon them, so it wasn't like they would go out into the desert and it was snowing. No, it was raining manna. It's raining manna, you know. It was raining manna. And it freaked them out. That's why they called it, what is this? Right? It's coming from the heavens. It must be the food of angels. 
And so God commanded them. He said, look, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going I'm to rain this down. This is going to be for you to eat. And that's how God supplied their needs. In Exodus 16, verses 31 through 34, this is an account that God instructed Moses on something to do with the manna. In verse 31, it says, now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed. It was white. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread which I had fed you in the wilderness. And when I brought you out of the land of Egypt, and Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony or the Ark of the Covenant to be kept. So God commands Moses, go out and gather a bunch of manna. Go out and gather a manna, put it in this large jar, and put it in the tabernacle. And this is the opposite of what God had commanded the rest of the people. If you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see that God told them to only get enough manna that would supply their need for the day. If they kept any over for the next day, they would wake up to maggoty, rotten, you know, you know, disgustingness, and they angered the Lord because they were walking in disobedience. But here God tells Moses, gather all this up, put it in a jar, and you're going to store it, and you're going to store it in front of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle where the presence of the Lord is. So this manna, this bread from heaven, would be supernaturally preserved, perfectly preserved before the presence of the Lord. And it's interesting that he puts it in the tabernacle because no one, if it's in the most holy place, no one but the high priest can go in there except once a year for the Feast of Atonement. If he put it in the, the inner court called the holy place where the, the candelabra was, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense, only the priests could go in there, not the rest of the people. So when God commands Moses to hide this away so the people can see what God has provided for them through the wilderness, only the priests could see it. No one else could. The manna was hidden from the rest of the people because they could not go in to see the manna into the tabernacle. So God had them do this, again, to remind them of the provision he gave them, that what gave them life as they wandered through the wilderness when they left the bondage in Egypt, but only the priests had access to see it. Symbolically, Egypt represents more than just the slavery of the Israelites. We can see through the New Testament that God uses it as imagery or symbolism to symbolize spiritual bondage. That before we come to Christ and we're dead in our sins, we are in slavery to our sinful nature. And yet God, once he delivered them, had them travel through the wilderness... In the wilderness to the ancient Jewish mind was symbolic of the place where demons um, played. This is the, the place, it was a dark place where nothing but death and destruction dwelled. And so they had the spiritual nature of what the wilderness represented. And so God traveled them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And as they traveled through, they had to follow the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They followed the presence of the Lord through the wilderness, and they ate the manna that God provided them, which sustained them on their journey. Just like when we come to Christ, we get set free from our slavery to sin, we become a new creation, but yet we're still wandering the wilderness of this life that's under the power and authority 
of the powers of the unseen world. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the unseen world. There is a spiritual darkness that rules over the world that we're still wandering in. And how do we survive? We survive by following the presence of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. And we also um, survive by ingesting, by communing, by tasting of the manna that God has sent down to us. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus tells us what that manna is. He says, I am the bread of life, and who comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When we approach the communion table that we have set up in the back of our auditorium every week that we start our services, what are we doing? We're not just remembering the death of Christ, but we're also symbolically eating the bread that has come from heaven, the manna that has been sent to heaven to supply all of our need, the true bread. Jesus said, whoever feasts on him, whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will never hunger, will never thirst. And no, we're not referring to the cup and to the juice. We're referring to a spiritual reality that when we taste and see that the Lord is good, when we give our hearts and lives to Christ, we put our faith in him, we seek after the Lord, that we will be spiritually satisfied. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew 5, he says, those who thirst and hunger for righteousness will be filled. They will find their thirst satisfied. In Psalm 63, the psalmist declares that God satisfies more than the richest feast. There is a there's a God-sized hole in every human heart, and only Jesus is big enough to fill it. And when we fill it with Jesus Christ, we find the satisfaction of our souls. And this is why Jesus came. He came as the bread of life to meet our spiritual needs. But this manna isn't simply speaking of heavenly delicacies or spiritual fulfillment being connected to Christ. It also speaks of what is coming in the latter days, right? Jesus says, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna, those who are faithful, those who conquer. I'm going to give you some hidden, hidden manna that's on reserve for the last day. Uh, in uh, the second temple period, around the time of Herod's temple, this is uh, prior to Jesus being on the scene in, in about 70, around 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, there were other Jewish writings that were produced at that time. They're not included in our Bible. But they give us insight into what was in the Jewish mind at the time. What these, these, these um, people that we get the scriptures from had in their head when they were writing the scripture. And in uh, 2 Baruch, section 26 through 30, this is what this uh, second temple writing indicates about the end of time and what would be coming from on high. In verse 8 it says, It shall come to pass... That at the self same time that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high, and they will eat of it in those years, because they, these are they who have come to the consummation of time. And it shall come to pass after these things, when the time of the advent of the Messiah is fulfilled, that he shall return in glory. So even in the second temple period, these Jews are affirming the very thing Jesus said. Those who conquer, those who overcome those who remain faithful in the last day the manna is going to return and you will get to eat of it because you have made it to the consummation to the fulfillment of all uh, things in his return 
Again, this was popularized around, the, around 70 A.D. And this also is, gives significance, this mindset and understanding gives significance to the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, Jesus fed the multitude with what, five loaves of bread and a few fish. And right after this miracle, they wanted to make Jesus king. Why? Because they knew that this was the same way God provided in the, in the wilderness. He provided bread, and he also provided meat. They had quail in the wilderness. Jesus is providing uh, these fish. And right after Jesus does this miracle, he says in Matthew 8, 11, or he says in John 6, that I am the bread of life. And so he connects this miracle of bread and, and supernatural provision to being the bread of life that comes from heaven. And they knew that this indicated that he was the Messiah. Jesus also many times during his ministry would teach about the kingdom of God. And he would use stories and parables. And one day he was talking to some uh, Jews, some religious leaders, and talking about the feast at the end of the world. There's a feast coming, and the people of God are going to get to party there. But you're not going to get there just because you're genetically related to Abraham. And he says in Matthew 8, 11, he says to them about the end times, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to tell them or insinuate, but you ain't one of them. It's like there is a feast coming and a bunch of people are coming. Matter of fact, more than just the Jewish people, there are going to be Gentiles from all over coming to this feast to hang out with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you're going to miss it. He confirms that there is a coming feast. And what is on the menu? He reveals to us here in Revelation chapter 2, the feast, what's on the menu is manna. It's the bread of angels. It's the bread of heaven. And we will see in the book of Revelation that this is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're not going to get into it now, but we'll see it later in the book, that there is a celebration when Jesus is finally united with his bride for all eternity. And manna isn't the only thing on the menu. We're going to see some other things, the significance of this meal that takes place. But the people that are invited to this meal are the faithful ones, the people of God who endure to the end, who are called, who are chosen to gather for the feast, the ones who conquer. If you want to make it to the feast and you want to taste the bread of heaven, then, beloved, be faithful. Stay strong. Hold fast and continue in faithfulness. The second thing Jesus tells the church of Pergamum, he says, I'm going to give you a white stone. It's kind of interesting, don't you think? Like God has a rock collection. I think that's pretty cool. You know, why white stone? Well, the color white is always associated metaphorically or symbolically as righteousness or purity. We'll see this in Revelation 3 and Revelation 7, the, the color white specifically the righteousness of the saints. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord says to the nation of Israel, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be what? White as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become white like wool. White always represents purity, holiness, righteousness. And what's interesting is this word stone is the word cephos, uh, which means a pebble or can be a, a precious gem. Scholar G.H. Beale acknowledges that in ancient times, the use of white stones were used in legal voting. In judiciary processes, especially in judgment, 
A white stone symbolizes uh, the acquittal or your innocence. If you were standing before a judge facing a judgment, you would get a white stone if you were found not guilty or innocent. On the reverse, you would get a black stone if you were pronounced guilty. So Jesus seems to be indicating to us that I will give you a white stone, and on this stone will have a name on it, and that is a name that only the one who receives it can understand. There are a few assumptions as to what this name could be. It could be a new name for the believer. That'd be pretty cool. Jesus seems to be changing names all the time in the Bible, right? Jacob became Israel. Abram became Abraham. You know, uh, I think Peter was, you know, um, what was Peter's name? Simon, yeah. Simon became Peter. And so Jesus, I would be cool to have a new name. I got named after two uncles that I we didn't really spend a lot of time with, you know. I think my parents just felt guilty if they used one name, they had to use the other. So it became de facto, I get named after uncles. So I'd like to have a new, um, a new name maybe. When I met my wife, matter of fact, because uh, I'm not real crazy about my middle name, I met my wife, she asked me what my name was, and uh, I told her my first and last name. She asked me what my middle name was, and I told her it was Ferdinand. It's not Ferdinand. And she actually believed me for a little bit of time until I had to, like, Spoiler, no, it's not really Ferdinand, but I had her going. It was pretty funny. But uh, Jesus says, I'll give you a white stone with a new name on it. And uh, there are different uh, ideas of what this could be. But I think the revelation is found in the next chapter in Revelation 3, verse 2, where Jesus says, I will write on him, these are faithful believers, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So the new city, the new Jerusalem is also getting a new name. And it's coming out of heaven from God. And also, Jesus is getting a new name. It says, and my own new name. So Jesus is getting a new name. And this is confirmed in the Old Testament, Isaiah 62.2. The prophet says, the nations shall see a righteousness in all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. But I think of often in Philippians chapter 2, it says about Jesus that God has given him a name which is above every other name. That there is a new name for Jesus that God has given him to glorify him that we will use to worship him for all time. And if, if you think back through the story of the Bible, again, we, we saw in, in week one of this series that there was an understanding of time periods and ages. That human history was divided into ages about every 2,000 years. And every 2,000 years in each age, you see God reveal a new name. In the time of creation, from creation all up to Abraham, we see God was known as God Almighty. By the time the, the age of Torah comes around and Moses is on the scene, he reveals himself by a new name as Yahweh, or I am that I am. When Jesus arrives on the scene, it's the, in the age of grace, we know him as Jesus, or salvation, or Emmanuel, which is God with us. And then when Jesus returns and begins the messianic era, the new age of the kingdom, he will have another name that we'll get to celebrate and worship him by for all eternity. And, uh, and so by giving these believers the white stone and looking at the context of what might be happening here, again, there's significance about giving him the name of Christ or giving him the, this new name. It's about association. We, we talked a few weeks ago about when you take the name of someone, like when a bride takes the name of her husband, 
She is taking on an identity to be identified with that name. And often in the Old Testament, God talks about putting his name upon people, like the, the, the blessing of the high priest. I say it at the end of every service. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and may he give you his peace. God told Aaron, he said, when you pronounce this blessing on the people, you're putting my name upon the people. You are associating them as part of me. And so here Jesus is giving them this white stone with a name on it, most likely his new name, to be associated with the name that is above all names. So not only are they having their innocence announced by Jesus by receiving this white stone, but they are also receiving a stone bearing the name that acts as their entryway or their pass to get into the feast at the end of time. Scholar David Owen also notes that the word sephos or white stones can refer to magical gems or mystical amulets. Often in ancient times, the people would have mystical gems or amulets with the names of their gods stamped onto the stones. And it would, uh, the thought was that it would then bless the benefactor with the magical properties that would come from that god. So with this understanding, we can also see that by receiving this white stone with the name of the Lord on it, it not only gives you access to the end time feast, not only identifies you with Christ, but it also opens up all of the blessings of one being attached or connected to Jesus himself. And we know, what does that mean? It means we become clothed in the righteousness of God. Number three, again, to the church of Thyatira, he makes these few promises. Number one, and this is probably one of my favorite to think about. Number one, he says, authority. Somebody say authority. Jesus promises the believers authority. They would receive authority, and not just any kind of authority. In Revelation 2.26, he says, The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. Jesus doesn't just say you're going to have authority. He says you're going to have the same authority that I have received from my Father. Meditate on that for a minute. What kind of authority did we see Jesus use when he was here with us? He had authority over nature. He had authority over sickness and disease. He had authority over death. He had authority over spiritual forces. He had authority over the laws of physics. He walked on water. For those of you that can't swim, you should be saying amen, right? Like, amen. No more floaties. I'm 40 years old and I'm wearing floaties in the pool, you know. But just think about the same authority that Jesus has is going to be the same authority that his people have. Imagine what we might be able to do. Imagine the things that we'll be involved in. It's the same authority. And what type of authority does Jesus have when he rose from the dead? He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That means all authority is going to be given to the bride, to the people of God. And this is the significance of this is incredibly deep. 
to remember, again, we always refer back to the Old Testament. Why? Because the Old Testament informs us of what the New Testament is talking about. In the Old Testament, when man fell and God sent the flood and they began to repopulate, they gathered together in cities in defiance against God again. They began this, this project that we call the Tower of Babel. And God came down and confused the languages. He separated the languages. He, he separated people into tribes and tongues. And then in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. That's a uh, phrase that means angelic beings. But the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob is his allotted heritage. So at the same time, the Lord separated the languages, separated the tribes, fixed the nations where they would be. He also assigned the rulers of the unseen world to rule over those nations, and he chose Jacob or Israel as his own portion. So the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, that people is God's people, and he handed over the other nations, the other people groups, to the other beings. And this divine council would gather before God, they'd report on what was going on, and they were charged with helping leading to lead mankind. The only problem is, is those beings fell. They made themselves into gods. They began to rule over mankind instead of bless mankind. And in Psalm 82, God said, because they fell into wickedness, that they would die like mortal people. There's a judgment coming on those angelic beings. And with this mindset, with this understanding, Paul makes a very interesting and profound statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, as he's talking to the church about all their petty arguments and how they're taking each other to the court and suing each other over what seems some pretty insignificant things. And as he's addressing the church in this, in this way, over this, this issue of taking each other to court, he says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Not only is God going to judge the angelic realm that has defected and rebelled against God, that has that has created all the chaos and suffering in the world, not only is he going to bring a judgment there, but the people of God are going to sit with him in judgment over those angels. And the angelic realm that once occupied his divine council, they're going to be replaced by the church of Jesus Christ as we sit enthroned with God over the nations for all eternity. And Jesus will rule from Jacob, from Israel, and his bride will cover the rest of the earth and rule over the nations as we bring the glory of God from east to west, from north and south. We will rule with Christ, and that messianic kingdom in Scripture says we'll rule with him for a thousand years. And we'll rule with a rod of iron. As when earthen vessels are broken in pieces. And this, again, harkens back to the Old Testament into the book of Jeremiah. If you think about what he's saying, what does a rod of iron, as with earthen vessels are broken, what does that mean? In the book of Jeremiah, just before God levies judgment against Israel and brings the Babylonians in to destroy Israel, destroy the temple, send them into exile, he sends Jeremiah 
to make a statement before the leaders and religious rulers in the people of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, here's what God tells Jeremiah. He says, Thus says the Lord, Go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom and to the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. And thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Pause there. Can you imagine? Like, when God does something, that when you hear about it, you're going to be like, oh, snap. Right? That, that's what he's saying. It's like, it's going to make people stand back in awe. Verse 4, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers or their kings of Judah have known. And because they filled this place with the blood of the innocents. And have built the high places of Baal and burnt their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. They will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hand of those who seek their lives. And I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. And I will make this cry of horror a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all of its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their lives will afflict them. And then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So will I break this people and this city as one who breaks a what? A potter's vessel, so that it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth, because there will be no more place else to bury. Thus will I do to this place, declares the Lord, and to the inhabitants making this city like Topheth. God is going to rain down his wrath, and it is going to be swift. It's going to be severe. The name Himmon means lamentation or sorrow. The name Topheth means a place where men spit in my face. And so it's a place of desecration, a place of abomination. The people of God were grieving the Lord because they were committing abominations to the god Baal that he says never even entered into his mind. Can you think about that? That mankind was so corrupt that they were doing wicked things that never even entered into the mind of God. Things like child sacrifice and all manner of sexual immorality, just like we saw last week. And here I think of the word topheth means the place where men spit in my face. He's talking to the Israelites and the nation of Israel about to destroy the temple. And if you remember, where was Jesus when he was being arrested? He was in Jerusalem. He was at the temple. And what did they do in his place? But they spit in his face. This is why I think God has a zero tolerance for compromise in his church among his people. To betray Jesus by following demonic doctrines and demonic beliefs 
Engaging in sexual immorality, child sacrifice, is to spit in the face of God. And so Jesus, when he comes, and he comes in judgment, he's going to turn this place from a place where God is grieved and where men spit in his face to the place of their undoing, a place of slaughter. He is going to judge the earth. And what's being described here, we relate to what Jesus is saying to the churches, is we not only become God's counsel, sit enthroned with him as judges, but we also, with the authority of the rod of iron, we become his hand of vengeance on the earth. You ever want to be a Jedi? I'm telling you, people, movies can't even touch what we're going to experience with God. When Jesus comes, when we get changed, we get transformed, it will be unlike anything. The Bible even says, no mind has seen, no ear has heard, nothing has even entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. You just have no idea the glory in the, what we're going to be a part of. The victory, when God says we are more than conquerors, when we have overwhelming victory, we don't even have an understanding of what that means. We will be enforcing the new law and the righteous standards under the rule of the Messiah for the messianic era for the kingdom of God. We will not only bear his name, but we will have the power to back it up. It's like being a police officer. A police officer has a badge, and that tells you where the authority comes from. But what good is a badge without a gun? You can tell somebody to do something all day long, but if you don't have the power to back up your authority, it's pointless. Jesus is not only giving us the stone with his name, he's also giving us the power and the authority to back it up. And we will represent him in the earth as we help him build the kingdom of God. What a privilege it is to be on the Lord's side, amen? We may be weak in this life. You may suffer persecution because of your faith in Jesus Christ. You may be under a spiritual attack because of demonic powers and rulers in the unseen realm. But beloved, when he comes, we will rise with him. We will take our place at his side for all eternity. And there's a feast coming, which means it's going to be a party and it's going to be lit. I'm telling you. We're going to party like we've never partied before in the presence of the Lord. And number four, lastly, Jesus tells the believers, those who are faithful at Thyatira, I will give you the morning star. The term morning stars in the Old Testament it refers to angelic beings, and the morning stars sang. It refers to supernatural beings. And even Satan, we've looked in this study, Satan has tried to steal the names of God. He's tried to, no matter how he manifests, whether it's by Zeus or by Baal or whatever he decides to to, to represent himself in the, all the demonic realm, it doesn't matter how he does it. He tries to take on God's attributes for himself, calling himself the first and the last, or the one who is, was, and was yet to come. This is no different. The name Lucifer is really not a name. It's a description. It means the bringer of light, the light bringer, or the morning star. And so even in this name, Satan is trying to steal what only belongs to God. And 
the star is a fulfillment of what would rise from Judah, the, what was prophesied by Balaam when Balaam was trying to curse Israel. But the specific interpretation of what the morning star is is given by Jesus himself in Revelation twenty two sixteen. Jesus says this. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David and the what? The bright morning star. Standing strong against the culture, enduring persecution, enduring cultural pressure to accept demonic ideologies and practices, holding fast to the faith and holding on to the truth no matter the cost, beloved, is not a wasted endeavor. We have 70 to 80, maybe 90 years, maybe 100 if you're lucky, if you're blessed, of physical life on earth. But we have an entire eternity of endless moments that we'll get to spend in the perfection and righteousness of God. The little time we have here is nothing compared to what we will experience in eternity. And there's a blessing coming when you receive the acquittal for your case. When you're identified with the Lord. As you're invited to the feast of the millennia with VIP status. When you're granted the authority in the king's council, and above all, you are given full and unfettered access to the lover and savior of your souls, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. No more separation, no more hidden manna, because he'll be fully revealed, and we'll see him as he is. And beloved, when we feast on the bread of life in him, there's no hunger, there's no thirst, but there's everlasting life. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes for just a moment and invite our prophetic team to make their way forward. I just want to leave you with this thought. The one who is faithful has never failed to keep his promise. The one who is faithful, who is true, has never failed to keep his promise. Did he promise judgment? Yes. Is it coming? Yes, it is. But he also promised everlasting life for those who would receive it by trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I just want to give you the opportunity, if you've never made that decision, to trust in Christ. This isn't to scare you into heaven. It's not. It's not a fearful thing. God wants to surround you with his love. The invitation is to taste and see that the Lord is good. There is something special planned for you that's coming when he returns that you have no comprehension about. There's not a way to wrap your mind around it. But the Bible also says that in this life while we live, we get to receive glimpses of glory through the Holy Spirit of God who comes to live inside of us, makes his home in your heart, and begins to lead you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And those are incredibly glorious. We're going to get to experience in just a minute as the Holy Spirit speaks to the hearts of our, our team and they encourage us in what they feel like he's sharing with their heart, we're going to be encouraged by a glimpse of glory. Many of you were touched with a glimpse earlier when you came forward and received prayer. And God began to stir in you and bring healing. The life of a Christian, a genuine life filled with the Spirit, walking in Christ, there is no other life like it. There is no other life like it. 
Your life will not be perfect. You'll still have trial, tribulation, and hardship. But there is a joy and a peace in you that sustains you and surpasses all understanding, even when life seems like it's falling apart. And at the end of the day, you know that there's joy coming. There's a day coming when every eye will see him, and he will wipe every tear from your eye. There'll be no more crying or pain or struggle. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never had that moment where you say, Jesus, I'm giving it all to you. I'm a mess, but today I'm your mess. I'm giving you my heart, my life. I'm trusting in you what you did for me on the cross. If you've never done that, I just want to encourage you to accept his offer and to pray right where you are. I'm going to say a little prayer. You can repeat what I say or you can say something in your own words. But just make the choice. Make the choice. Do it today. And I promise that God's word is faithful and you'll begin the change. You'll begin to live that new creation life that the God of heaven, the God of the universe comes to live inside of you. And you'll never be the same. Lord God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises of what's to come. I thank you for what you're revealing to us in your word. Right now, I just pray to encourage those that need to make a decision for Christ, that right where they are, they would give you their heart. If that's you here today, just say a little prayer like this. Say, Father in heaven, thank you for loving me and sending Jesus to die for my sins. I receive your salvation, and I give you my heart and my life. I'm trusting in Jesus. In his death and resurrection, I proclaim him to be my Lord and Savior. And I look forward to the day when I see him face to face. In Jesus' precious name I pray. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.cb forward slash give. Thank you.